on this week's Bet the Process podcast. If you can get through the t- terrible sound quality that Rufus is purveying, we have a wonderful interview with Lou Stagner. And this is a super golf nerd podcast. So um, we talk about everything from effects of pressure to how you should get fit for clubs. So hopefully you gain something from this and hopefully you actually like golf. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a out with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems Welcome like- to another episode of the Bet the Process podcast. It is the Open Championship episode of the Bet the Process podcast brought to you by Starlink. Actually, not really Starlink because ultimately you'll see later on or maybe in this segment that we're struggling with Rufus's uh, dial-up connection that Elon got him. Uh, Rufus, how's Maine? Honestly, the connection seems fine. It just seems like you don't hear me until 10 seconds later. So I I don't know why that's happening, but... Uh, Maine, Maine is fantastic. It's it's good to be back here after my sojourn to Myrtle Beach to uh, kick Rob's butt at the world, the match, whatever it was called, of the World Putting League. So, and now now it's it's British Open week. So so it's a uh, it's an exciting week, Jeff. What has your week looked like? Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, you had the the Rob stuff. That was last week, right? That was last week. Yeah, and guess guess who won last so, week? Yeah. Rory McIlroy won a golf tournament. That was exciting. You, um, and you got in you general, both outrights. Yeah, so we didn't have much hit, on Norman. Are you going to hit another outright this week? No, not this week. I think that's too much no. to ask. That's a bridge too far, Jeff. Are you going to tell us who your outrights are this week? Um, I can give a few. Yeah, give a few. Give a few to the peeps. That, so that so one to... one I like, and I'm going to let you interpret the, I don't want to say the news, but his interviews, as you will. And this, and maybe this is, I'm curious your opinion here. Um, Matt Fitzpatrick, he, he said in an interview that his expectations were not high. His game is not in a good place right now. Basically, Scotty, we, we, Scotty Scheffler is on this other planet right now, and we can't all be there but he's certainly not there and he hit, you know, he loves links courses yet. They wouldn't be his first choice for his last round of golf. And he doesn't think they fit his game that well, something like that. So with that said, my numbers like him. Well, is he just playing possum? I, I don't know. That's the I mean, question. You, you, you would, you would never, you would always pick your numbers over what some, narrative that a golfer created right and you're not, yeah you're i mean not I, I think it depends on the golfer right i mean also there's what did jack nicholas say that that half of the golfers he's already beaten half the golfers for majors before they show up so in a way if, if matt fitzpatrick actually feels that way about his game like if his confidence is fragile that's it could impact his game for sure he's coming off a, a pretty disappointing performance 
in Scotland where he, he was pretty bad around the greens and he, he shot a two under first round and then one over or sorry, three over in, in the easy weather on Friday morning to miss the cut and cost me some money. But yes, I will take my numbers over narratives always. However, there, and we still have exposure on Fitzpatrick. I mean, more than I would like now, but I don't know. It's one of those things like clearly they're him saying that could mean something very different than another golfer saying that. And think back to last week. What did I say? I mean, I tweeted out the last time I had played mini golf was in Vegas in January with someone I was dating and she beat me, which is true. But I was, I was certainly keeping expectations low for myself. So you are the Matthew Fitzpatrick of well, putting. Maybe, but but maybe Matthew Fitzpatrick was just being candid. I mean, and some guys tend to be more candid. candid. If it was <laughs> some guys do better with or without expectations, I guess. I mean, like it feels like Rory's a guy who tends to play better when there's not the weight of the world on him. See what happened to him at Augusta this year. What um do you think the weight of the world is on him going into this week? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't. I think getting a win takes... He obviously wants to win, but I think getting a win is a confidence boost. And, and the fact that he came through in the clutch, he that two iron he hit into 18... Did you see that, Jeff? That low yeah, shot. Incredible. I mean, he's not a low ball hitter at all. And and he just hit that perfect. And and that iron into 17. I mean, and he came through on both those putts. Like but Rory but is a great we've player, never, but he's not the most cut clutch player. And he but we've never had a but we've never had I don't think we've had as many doubts about Rory's ability to come back from behind or to close on the last day when he's slightly out of it, right? Like there were at that point, you said it like his ability or his like the likelihood of him birdieing 17 and 18 in those conditions on those holes was very unlikely. So in many ways, the pressure is off him. Like, you know, like if you're just like, Oh, I mean, I, yeah. I got to hit a perfect two. It's like, no one's expecting him. Right. So there's, there's less pressure now. Wait, wait, wait. All of a sudden, what about that four foot, five inch putt or whatever, a four foot, 10 inch putt he had on 17. That was a putt where I mean he missed he missed the seven footer on sixteen for birdie on the par five after hitting a really nice little sixty yard wedge um, for his third. He has I was like convinced he was probably going to miss that four footer and and he struck it perfect and then and so I mean, and then I I don't think he thought he'd made the putt on eighteen. That was maybe the most interesting reaction, but I, I get what you're saying. But it's like once and it is a distinction, but he kind of came back from the fact that he had faltered early in the round when I was asleep and not watching because it was like it, you know, 4am or something like that. But he started with a lead. And I think after nine holes, he was, he had shot. What was he? One or two over. He was, I think he was back at 11 under and a few shots back. And he, it's like he encountered that adversity and he was mentally strong enough to, to, come and shoot a four under on the back. Um, all right. Well, I think this is the, the, the bottom line is this kind of conjecture about pressure and our ability to like, it's kind of like, we're just creating narratives. Like you're just literally doing the same things that I know 
Right Everyone now. does. So that's because I okay, watch enough of this stuff that I, it's, it's hard to not. I mean, I'm a human. We tend to see the world in stories ish, ish, and seek explanation. Ish, ish human. So, okay. So, okay, if it's let's, Patrick, let's, let's believe it or not. I actually, I mean, I don't know. Not There's not that many great Rory prices at US books, but if you can get like, if you, if you can get like plus 850 on him, I would take it. Nice. That's exciting. It's exciting to yeah. have Rory in this thing. And I'll give what you about- a surprise guy I like. Rom? Minimum Wu Lee. Huh. Yeah. You haven't heard that like from that. me before, have you? I have never heard that before. In Wu Lee, I make his true price 66 to 1. There are, oh. like, I think Betfair Exchange has him at 90 to 1. Um, most U.S. books are anywhere between like 60 to 1 and 85 to 1. So Min Woo Lee, a little Rory, and some Fitz. Matthew Fitzpatrick is the Rufus Peabody uh, basket portfolio. Going and I'll give you, it. I'll give you a big, and, and I'll give you one big long shot, and that's Jordan Smith at two hundred to one or greater. Great okay. ball striker, awful putter, probably the worst putter in the field. Okay. Hopefully his lag putting is good though. All right. Well. Let's bring in Luce Stagner. And maybe for this podcast, we just won't have a closer because Rufus just gave you some picks. And also, we want to get this thing up there as quickly as possible so you can actually listen to it before the British Open. Um, the Lou, Lou interview is awesome. Um, apologies for Rufus struggling a little bit with his uh, Starlink connection that Elon personally installed for him. Um but we'll bring Lou in right now and we'll talk to you guys all again next week. We now welcome in Lou Stagner to the Bet the Process podcast. Um, Lou, welcome to uh, the podcast on Open Championship Week. It's very exciting to have you on. Uh, Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. It's one of the best weeks of the year. Uh, where do you rank it in terms of weeks of the year? Is it the second, the third, or the fourth? It's, it's the third. Yeah, it's the third. It would be Masters number one, U.S. Open number two, and the Open number three. Although I do love uh, early morning golf. So this weekend, I will be making a huge breakfast each morning. I'll be getting up way earlier than I want to. Uh, and drinking good coffee and just watching golf over breakfast on Saturday and Sunday morning, which is awesome. I almost like that better than I like. Uh, I'm on the East Coast. I'd prefer that over primetime major championship golf when they play on the West Coast. So I'd rather have breakfast golf. Are you, are you making are you an blood afternoon? sausage? Are you making blood sausage <laughs> for breakfast? No, I'm going to stay traditional, just uh, you know, eggs and bacon and toasts. Typical American fare. You're actually making a tasty breakfast, so that's not in the tradition of European breakfast, then. <laughs> I'm not going to touch that one. But yes. <laughs> uh, Rufus, Lou, did you, you have a, an equally witter, witty retort for Lou? I was going to ask if he's a morning or afternoon golfer, because I think the big distinction is, you know, if it's in the morning, then you can play in the afternoon. But if it's prime time, you can play kind of morning slash all day. 
Um, yeah, for, uh, I typically play any, anytime. So most of my weekend golf used to be a really early in the morning when my daughter was younger, I'd try to get out at the crack of dawn and be home at a reasonable time. Now I play mid mornings, uh, typically a little bit more and even some afternoon rounds, you know, 12, 30, one o'clock, um, on the weekends just depends what time we're, we're headed out. So I like all times on the weekend. So let's take a step back and Tell our seven listeners a little bit about who Lou Stagner is and why we are talking to you on this third um, best week of the year. Yeah, that's a great question. It's probably a better question for you guys. You must have been desperate to, to find somebody to fill the slot. So um, I, I have a background in analytics. I've been working in analytics in corporate America for a couple decades now. And about five years ago, I started to blog about golf analytics. Uh, there was an old podcast that I used to listen to done by Will Haskett uh, called The Perfect Number. And he always had some really interesting guests on there. And uh, there was a couple, he was talking to some people from the 15th club and they were talking about um, measuring people in the clutch. And I had access to the shot link data and I went, I bet I could put something together around that. That's pretty interesting. Um, so I told my wife, I'm going to start a blog on golf analytics. Uh, it was really to kill some time in the winter up here in the Northeast. I didn't expect anyone to read it. Um, and a friend of mine told me you need to start posting on Twitter. So I started to put some stuff on Twitter to literally four followers, um, like a couple of Russian bots, my mom and my wife. Uh, and, uh, before you knew it, I had, uh, a lot of people taking interest in some of the things that I initially put out there, got to meet a lot of people, worked with a number of different people along the way, uh, including, you know, guys that like low score wins, Dave Wedzik and Eric Barzeski, and then Scott Fawcett. Um, and then, uh, about a year and a half ago, started consulting at Arcos and, have worked with uh, different players along the way. Uh, and now I uh, am the assistant coach uh, for Princeton, uh, their men's, their men's team and work with a, a number of, of players uh, at all different skill levels. So what was when you started kind of the most surprising thing that data showed you that you would, it was a counterintuitive or, or whatnot, because you obviously are a good golfer. You're a two handicap and, uh, you probably had opinions on the game, but the classic, like, what do the numbers say differently than what you had thought as a golfer? Yeah, one of the first things that I put out there was, uh, you know, I grew up, I think we all probably grew up as golfers, being told you need to play for the better, better angle. So if the if the hole is cut on the right side of the green, you need to aim it up the left side of the fairway to get the better angle. And one of the first things I, I looked at was, was that, and I've done that now with PGA tour data and I've done that with Arcos data as well. Uh, and I fully expected there to be a massive advantage uh, for players that had the better angle. And that was not what it was at all. Um, the, the biggest advantage was uh, typically right in the middle of the fairway and sort of, and this holds true for amateur players as well. And I, and I think the, the hypothesis there, uh, and I'd be able to answer this better if I had intention, like that's one of the things that's missing in all of this is what was the intention? Where were they trying to hit it? But what I think is going on is we've all been told 
when you have the good angle, you can be more aggressive. Um, and when you have the bad angle, you need to be more conservative. And when you look at the data, what happens is with the good angle, um, they are short sighting it more. Um, and when you short sight it more, you are going to uh, not make par as much. And when you have the bad angle, they tended to be a little bit too conservative, aiming too far away from the flag. And I think they naturally sort of backed into the sweet spot of what would be optimal in the middle of the fairway. They, they didn't get too aggressive because they had the good angle. They didn't get too conservative because they had a bad angle. They found that sweet spot and optimized scoring. And it looks that way for tour pros and uh, for amateurs alike. It's interesting. I was, did you look at this analysis kind of within golfers? So controlling yeah. for the golfer? Yeah, within golfers, individual golfers, we have some people, uh, you know, obviously at tour level, it's not perfect because everything's always different. You know, we're not, um, you know, we're not shooting free throws. It isn't a, a 15 foot shot to the same exact basket at the same height. Um, golf is very different. Everything's always very different. So sometimes that gets hard, as you well know. But yeah, even within the golfer, and there are some players in Arcos that um, play an incredible amount of golf uh, and some of them are playing almost exclusively at one course so think maybe a retired person that shows up and plays seven days a week um, and they rack up hundreds and hundreds of rounds every year and even looking at those players um, at their home club uh, that you see the same thing yeah so it's it's pretty pretty interesting and if you think about it from the, you know, what's the optimal target standpoint in how people typically approach it. And I think the hypothesis makes sense um, as to what's going on and why it's going on, but I'd love to know intention. Like that's one of the biggest things that's missing in all of this data is what the intention was that would help us to dive into this a little bit better. So can you use these types of findings? So how, to... um, when you think about analyzing golf, is it different for amateurs? You mentioned like Arcos and then you have shot link. Like what's the, the different major differences between amateurs and professionals? Um, yeah, I want, you know, I want to come back to that one. So I, there's a couple of other things that I think are super interesting that um, I, I've, that was just, you know, the first one and one that really popped out. The other one is how much time of day impacts putting. That's really fascinating. Um, and this happens at all levels. And if you look at, it doesn't matter, like on the PGA Tour, if you look at putting performance by time of day, the later in the day it gets, the worse putting performance gets. And that holds true regardless of the group that you look at, whether it's every player in the PGA Tour, whether it's only players that finish on the top of the money list, it's only players that made the cut that week, it's only players that missed the cut, it's only players that are you know top 20 in strokes gained putting, only the, the, the longest drivers, it doesn't matter who you look at, they all get worse as the day goes on. And, and also by round, there's no, you know, like it's Sunday afternoon and I get nervous. It's round one, two, three, or four. All of this holds true regardless of how you look at it. And I have met through my golf travels, uh, a guy named Dr. Brandon Horvath, who is a professor of turf science um, at University of Tennessee, and he's done some studies around grass growth and foot traffic throughout the course of the day. And as the green uh, gets foot traffic on it, it starts to get bumpier. And as the grass starts to grow throughout the day, it starts to get bumpier. 
And as it gets bumpier, uh, it becomes more difficult to make putts. There's more randomness that is introduced and that is especially impactful to PGA tour pros. And, and it's you know, roughly, it, it depends, but it's a 0.2 to 0.25 shots, you know, between teeing off early in the morning, first round uh, on fresh greens and, you know, teeing off at 1 PM, you know, all of that is going to be impacted slightly based on some of the conditions uh, of the course itself, how firm, how soft are the greens? What's the type of grass that it is? What time of the year is it? How fast is the grass growing? How many players are in the field? Uh, so it's, all of those will be a factor, but it, it is a pretty big impact throughout the course of the day, which I thought was really fascinating. I'm curious, Lou, how much that impact you're raising your hand. I'm curious how much that impact varies based on grass type. If yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, POA is going to be very bumpy to begin with. Is right? Is it not going to get that much bumpier because it's you know it's so basically if those five footers are already really hard to make, are they going to you know continue to just be hard to make, or is it going to matter more on sort of more pure grasses? Yeah, I wish we had Dr. Horvath here because he would be able to answer that question a little bit better. I am by no means a turf science person, but in my layman's understanding, um, even these different grass types, um, uh, their their leaves, I think that's maybe the right way to, to describe it. They they all start, so even though Poe is all, already pretty bumpy, as it starts growing throughout the day, it starts sprouting up these little things uh, that make it even bumpier. So it starts bumpy, but it gets even bumpier, which is going to... Uh, make it more difficult. Um, when I haven't looked at it at specific grass types, um, I have looked at it in uh, with uh, broken down by warm weather grass versus cool weather grass. So lumping uh, warm weather grasses together and cool weather grasses together. And the effect was pretty much the same across grass types. Um, the one thing that you know does play a difference is how uh how firm or soft the greens are so when you play and that's one of the they, they track that in shot length they give just a, a a firm medium soft designation nothing beyond that uh, but it's directionally correct uh, and and relatively useful to look at and when you look in soft conditions the there's more of an effect if you look in firm conditions it's less of an effect and i think that's really mostly driven by uh, foot traffic. Uh, and when it's soft out, that foot traffic tends to cause a little more you know, damage. I don't know if that's the right word, but impressions and they stay longer. What are some other, are there any other factors that you've seen that are, because like, obviously one of the things that's super interesting to think about when we're going into the open championship is people that go off early in the day versus late in the day. This is yeah. really interesting, fascinating, right? And you would say, just from your, from your, from my layman's uh, reaction to what you've told us, the impact theoretically, although I just heard Michael Kim on Twitter say that the greens were soft, but you would think like an open championship course, the greens wouldn't be that soft, right? They'd be kind of harder. So they, they're, they're they hard, have but as they're big slow. Of an impact. Um, what about this? Uh, what, are there any other factors that you've seen that, um, have an effect on sort of time of day or amount of play or whatnot? Uh, you know, one might be wind, you know, wind tends to vary throughout the day. I think typically in the morning, you, you, 
you typically don't see as much wind and that will start to pick up over the course of the day. And one of the things that's pretty interesting, and this is player dependent, but there are a lot of players that really struggle off the tee with a wind at their back. Um, and if you were to sort of normalize wind at their back tee shots, to, you know, I'm doing this to make it easier to think of at sort of a per round level, there's some players that uh, are you know, almost th three quarters of a shot worse off the tee with a wind uh, on their back. Um, and so depending on, you know, wind direction, wind strength, time of the day you're playing, are you playing in a, a windier condition than somebody else? And the course that you, that you are on, what direction are these holes going and what direction is the wind that day? And I know sometimes you guys run a podcast on, on, you know, betting, bet the process, um, I always wondered if there are certain golf courses for players uh, where wind is a factor and it's a factor in that maybe there's a lot of holes where the wind is going to end up on your back that day. And if you happen to be a player that does not do well in that situation, you know, that could be, you know, anywhere from a third of a shot to a half of a shot impact depending on the golf course. And that just kind of puts you behind the eight ball. So that that's one thing that can, can impact just off the top of mind. Do you have any behind theories? Rufus, go ahead. Rufus, why don't you text me your questions and I can ask them because it's really hard to understand your questions. <laughs> um, he's having internet issues. So when, when you think about that effect, right? The wind effect, right? Which is huge. For anyone that's played golf or watch golf, we know that's huge. Are there any theories as to like correlations between the type of golfer and the one that struggles with the wind at its back? Um, that's a great question. I don't, don't know the answer to that. Um, we, in the, the podcast that, that I run, and this is just, you know, one player's comment on this. So Victor Hovland, he's a player that, that is not as impacted by the wind as much. Um, and I brought that up to him in the podcast and said, you know, what, why is that? What are you doing differently when you have a wind on your back? Because there are some players that are really impacted and the impact to you is really small. What are you doing? And he answered it the first, he answered it in two ways. And the first thing that he said was, you know, I typically was only playing a cut. That was all that I was playing off the tee. And I learned how to hit a draw and hold it up into the wind. And that made me much more effective in a left to right wind. Um, and then he also said, I basically shifted my target left. So he did a couple of things to improve his performance in a left to right wind. He learned to hold a draw up into it and he shifted his target a little bit farther left. And so I think with some of these you know, uh, these situations where you get in strong winds, players that have the ability to work the ball both ways, you know, somebody like Justin Thomas comes to mind. He's a pretty good wind player uh, and he works the ball both ways um, and he'll do so dictated on the conditions. And so if you have the ability to do that, I think you get it, you gain an advantage over some of the other players. You think, um, going into the open championship and analyzing golfers and, and their ability to perform well. Um, you mentioned some golfers that are sort of good win players. Yeah. Who are some others that you know of that you think 
Um, I haven't looked at the weather forecast. I assume it will be windy. Like, do you, are there players that you think because of their, you know, wind ability that um, may overperform expectations? Um, that's a, a good question. Um, I think that, and this is just going to be such an obvious standard answer that provides no value to anyone, but uh, the better ball strikers are, are probably going to tend to do well in these situations. Um, the more solid you're hitting the golf ball, even if you're not flighting it too much, even if you're not pulling trajectory down, the more solid you're hitting the golf ball, the less it's going to be impacted by the wind. And so somebody like Scheffler, who's just been an absolute machine um, today, uh, th this year, um, you know, he's someone that is probably going to continue to play well and play well in these kind of situations. I think I saw just a chat. Yeah, Rufus is asking how persistent. Yeah, Rufus is asking how persistent are these wind effects? Have you analyzed that out of sample? Because he the guru of sports betting in the golf world hasn't seen uh, a lot of persistent effects. Um, at a player level, so it, it, is he talking about at a player level or overall? So at a player I level, I think at I've a player seen, level, yeah, guess, at yeah. a player level, I've, I've definitely seen some impacts. I'd be happy to chat with him more in detail about that and kind of see what what he did and, and what I did and, and compare some notes, but yeah, at a player level, I've definitely seen some, some impacts. Um, and some of that is, I'm not sure where, where he pulls the weather data from. Like, uh, you know, that's one of the things that's challenging about this is um, Shotlink does include some weather data, but I don't use that. I'm, I'm pulling it in from, from somewhere else and trying to leverage that as best as I can, um, knowing that it's not perfect. You know, sometimes, you know, the closest weather station is six miles, seven miles away. Uh, and they're, you're only getting information from it every so often. So what you have is maybe directionally correct, but it's not perfect. Rufus says he's doing that also, and he's merging it with the shot link data, but he doesn't have the time stamp for Euro events. So <laughs> <laughs> I love yeah, being I able to be the ventriloquist for Rufus because it really makes me sound really intelligent. Like I know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, how about um, the sort of links golf and, you know, um, what skill sets do you see is more or less important for, for links golf? Um, like most other events, ball striking typically rises to the top when it gets windy out, uh, better ball strikers are, are going to tend to do better. Links golf is interesting in that it's, um, very different than what we're used to here, uh, especially as it gets really firm and they have to play more of a ground game. Um, it greens at some of the places they play at are, are huge. And so you have to have good speed control on the greens. So you can, you tend to need to be a pretty decent lag putter. Um, but like every other golf course, if you, it doesn't matter the golf course that you're on for the most part, the best players are, are generally going to rise to the top. Generally. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to a guy here in Rufus that, you know, knows more about this than just about anybody on the planet. So, you know, he may be listening. I wish he was here to talk and wasn't having internet issues. Rufus, why don't you try to He's talk? Back. Can you try to talk again? Uh, no, we can't hear no, him. It's, can't talk. I don't know why you can't hear me. There we go. Now we can. We can hear you now. Just talk. I'm just like 15 seconds lagged, I think. 
Okay, well, keep talking then. <laughs> Rufus is tapping out. Oh my gosh. It's like, I didn't a, have anything it's to like say right having there. a mupa. Okay. Um, well, why don't you continue to try to talk and we'll continue to try to listen to you. Okay, and... Well, I'm just, I want to continue to listen to Lou. Okay. Is there anything else you want to ask on that uh, dimension? We, it sounds like it, it, Rufus had a question about driver versus um, iron play. Yeah. Which, go ahead. Yeah. I, I, so you've said that iron play is the biggest thing that distinguishes amateurs or high handicap amateurs from scratch players. But you've also said that driving distance is the single most important thing to lowering your score. Or maybe you didn't say um, the single most yeah, important I don't think thing, it's but you said it's the most important thing. Very important. And so, yeah, it is. You know, generically, I would say uh, ball striking is if you want to, if you're a 15 handicap. So Jeff told me he's a 15, a dangerous 15 is what he said. Uh, a 15 handicap, knowing nothing else about to bystanders. Jeff, a 15 handicap um, would want to improve their ball striking. There's going to be a huge gap between a scratch player and a 15 with the quality of strikes that they hit with driver and with iron. So knowing nothing else generically, that's good advice. But one of the things I also say is uh, it's very player dependent, right? So here's a great example. Let's say the three of us are all 10 handicaps um, and we get on the first tee and what's your handicap? I'm a 10, I'm a 10, I'm a 10. All right, cool. Straight up, no strokes. Let's just play this uh, scratch between us. And Jeff is in the top 5% of putters for 10 handicaps. He would putt like the typical scratch player. Let's say I am the typical 10 handicap putter. I'm going to putt like the typical 10 handicap putter. And Rufus is in the bottom 5% of putters for 10 handicap. He's going to putt like the typical 20 handicap. Now, remember, we're all 10 handicap overall, but Jeff putts like a scratch. I putt like a 10 and Rufus putts like a 20. The 20 and the, and the scratch, they have nearly five shots of difference, of skill difference between them, between the 20 and the scratch. And so while generically, I would say most 10 handicaps, if, if they want to get down to a five or a scratch, ball striking is probably where they would want to start. Rufus, who is putting like the typical 20 handicap, very likely has some low hanging fruit there that he could tackle and very quickly go from a 10 down to a seven and a half or a seven. Jeff who is already a fantastic putter putting like the typical scratch, it might be tougher for him to improve his ball striking to go from a 10 down to a seven really quickly. Probably going to be easier for Rufus to go from a 10 down to a seven by working on his putting because knowing nothing else, he's probably not working on his putting too much and it's something he could fix relatively quickly. I hope that made sense the way I, I walked through that. Well, you are talking to a guy that just won the world <laughs> putting league match championship against Rob Pizzola. I just need a shout out of bet the process over circles off. So there <laughs> let's go. Awesome. And then I followed that up with my best putting round of my life the next day, even though I played awful everywhere else in my game, but I, I, I made three putts outside of 50 feet and drained everything inside of 10 feet. I like, it was the kind it, it would have been a, a 96th percentile putting performance for a PGA pro. Yeah, that's that's pretty impressive. That's pretty good. Those are those don't happen too often. No, no. With a putter I'd never used before, rental clubs. <laughs> to top it go. off, it was it was the confidence boost from the World Putting League. <laughs>
I would not golf does carry over to the to the real golf course maybe it does i would not have given the putter back i would have kept it if that were me i put it like yeah that. but then so i would have had to get it on a plane so that's tougher <laughs> so so going back to this uh idea of like where you've seen things and differences and putters and things like that how much of a difference do you think equipment makes um i know that's a very broad question right but like rufus saying like oh it's a putter i'd never used before putting obviously is a lot feel and whatnot so i could see that but what kind of, you know, what advice I guess do you give to the average golfer as they think about equipment choices and that kind of thing? That's a, it's a good question. And, uh, you know, getting fit for clubs is important, but it has to be a good fit. You know, you have to go to a good fitter. You're going to have to spend some time uh, and I'm not picking on anyone or throwing anyone under the bus, but when you walk into a fitting and you hit six shots with a, a certain head and shaft combination, and then you hit six shots with a different one and six with a different one. That's, you know, that's really, unless you're at a very, very high level, you're not going to learn much from that. Like we have so much variance in our games. Let's say us amateurs, you just have to, you have to hit enough shots to have any kind of confidence in a given setup for you. And that, in my opinion, makes it really challenging for uh, fitting to be, as robust as it could be because no one's going to spend that much time. No one's going to have amateurs hit a few hundred shots over the course of multiple days to, to dial in what works best. Um, and so you have to do as best, uh, as good a job as you can. Uh, and so, you know, controlling for things like the loft of your, we're just talking driver here now, making sure you have the right loft on your driver. What's your angle of attack with driver? Um, what is launch looking like right now? Uh, what's your vertical launch? What's, what's your spin? Um, how can we potentially modify that? You know, if you're launching it extremely low and you're a slower swing speed player, we might want to put you in a 12 or 13 degree driver. We may want to really jack that up to optimize distance for you and let you launch it a little bit higher, maybe with some different spin uh, so you can gain some distance without really changing anything else. So that's important. The other one that's really interesting around driver is I've had a, a number of players that I know go through this. I wish I had a ton of data on this, but amateur players are typically buying stuff off the shelf. It's coming with 45 and a half inch shafts. Um, and the shorter the shaft, the easier it starts to become to keep the ball closer around the sweet spot. And I just posted recently about a friend of mine that made that change and went from a 45 and a half inch shaft down to a 42.75 is six index. And you could see the, and he did all of this on GC quad over, you know, 10 days um, and alternating which club he hit each day, the long one or the short one. And he didn't really lose much distance. It was like three yards maybe, but his dispersion got way tighter, uh, way, way tighter. And that's, and, and when I think about that for amateur players, I don't care that you're going to hit more fairways. I care that you're going to hit less in the trees and less OB. That's what we're, we're, that's sort of the sweet spot. I want you to hit it as far as you can. Distance is extremely important, but we have to keep it on the golf course. We have to keep it in play because penalty strokes just absolutely kill the scorecard. And so that, that's a really important piece. And from, I've seen data from, maybe 30, 25, 30 players on this, not as robust as what my friend did. Um, and the 
overwhelming feedback is the shorter shafted driver um, didn't really lose me any distance overall. Your longest drives might be a little bit shorter, but you don't have these giant, huge misses that go off the planet. So that's, I think, something for many amateurs to investigate. And that would be finding a good fitter. You don't go out into your garage. If anyone's listening and they're, they got the hacksaw, stop. Like, don't start chopping a couple inches off your driver shaft. You want to go somewhere. It's going to change swing weight. You're going to need to make sure that this is dialed in, but it's something to investigate. And then as far as fitting for like irons go, um, make sure you have correct length. Make sure you have correct lie. Make sure your gapping is appropriate. Um, and that's probably a whole separate discussion. I think a lot of the ways that we do yardage gapping right now is, is not optimal. Like people want the same, you know, 10 yard gap between clubs or 13 yard gap between clubs. And I don't think that's an optimal way to, to do it. Um, I think you should have more than 14 clubs. You should have 20 clubs um, and you should be altering the clubs based on the golf course you're going to be playing and the length at which you're going to be playing the golf course and in that area where you're going to have a lot of approach shots. So if you're going to have a ton of approach shots from like 110 to 160 in that range, you should tighten your gaps up. And the reason you should tighten your gaps up is I've done some testing with several hundred amateur players. When you are hitting stock shots, you, your dispersion gets smaller. Um, and if you have, let's just say uh, an eight yard gap in the distance range where you're going to hit a ton of approach shots, that's going to be better than having a 13 yard gap. Because what happens all of us, when we, when we get a number like, Oh, that's like halfway in between my seven iron and my eight iron, you're either trying to hit a soft seven or a hard eight, your dispersion gets bigger. If we can have as many stock shots as possible, that it, it is going to overall give us a smaller dispersion. So I, I think we should, you know, as, as a golf community should think about gapping a little bit differently. All right. I feel like I'm rambling now. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be quiet. No, I want to, I want to, <clears throat> sorry. Rock. Yeah. One idea I have is like, I think they should have fewer golf clubs in the bag. And I think it would, it, and it would require more skill, more shot making skill, having to hit fewer stock shots, et cetera, at least in the professional game. I mean, I don't know maybe you guys haven't, but I, have you ever played like a five club challenge where you go out and play around with five clubs? Yeah. I 100%. Yeah. Almost as well as I normally do. It's because it, yeah. And it's yeah. more creative and fun. Um, it definitely, you know, it, it, it certainly requires more skill to hit different shots. And, and that's one of the ways we practice with the Princeton team um, is going out and playing with a, you know, reduce number of clubs, whatever that happens to be that day. Um, so it is going to teach you uh, how to hit different shots, just put you in different situations. And if they ever change that rule, then that would be a very valuable skill. But until they do, um, I would want to optimize within the current rule set. Can we, can we go back to this concept of club fitting? Because I went to the the kingdom um, and got fitted there, right? It was an unbelievable experience. And yeah, it's the kingdom flex, right? But like, one of the things that I was thinking about was how much my game has changed since then, but, and also just how variable as a golfer I am from one day to the next. Do you think the proper way to fit would be to 
you know, use a launch monitor over enough time and then use that to actually think about fitting um, where you have a larger sample size or, or how do you think about that as, as the, like the way that fitting should large, and, and obviously there's misaligned incentives here because then club fitters theoretically are, are, you know, it's, it's, it's more of an automated process than necessarily a art and field process where you need a human doing it. But like, how do you think about that and the impact of the, the fitting world? Yeah. I, I, and again, I'm not throwing any fitters under their bus or anyone. It's, it's a challenging, it's, it's worthwhile and it's valuable, but it's challenging to do it in a way that's cost-effective, I think. Uh, but I have, uh, there's a coach that I know really well who has given, gives a gazillion lessons every year. And he's a GC quad guy, actually GC Hawk, the overhead one. And he has his students. So not only is he doing lessons with students, he's doing like defined practice plans in his center. Um, and they go through combines. And one of the combines that he puts them through is with driver. And it's a 20 shot combine that they go through and they, you know, they do full routine. They're trying to hit it perfectly as close to the center line as they can, as long as they can. And, and he's doing this throughout the course of working with these players. And he sent me the data for a lot of players. Um, and I have many sessions from these players. And what I, I, what I was curious about was around this topic was looking at like these six shot sequences, you know, so Rufus shows up, he hits 20 shots and I just randomly pick out six in a row. And I do that throughout all of these. And, and it's remarkable, the huge difference that you see in performance. And what I was doing was, you know, sort of uh, creating a few mock holes um, and calculating strokes gained for these players, you know, theoretical strokes gained. And you're going to see, you know, a shot and a half difference on a per round level um, for performance from the same player. If you found their six best shots in a row and their six worst shots in a row um, within a 20 shot stretch, you could see up to a shot and a half difference in performance. And so sometimes with fitting, you're just kind of rolling the dice of, you know, who just showed up during those six shots, because I can show you a 20 shot sample from the same player. And I can show you six in a row that were fantastic and six in a row that were not fantastic. And if, if you happen to hand me that club when I was on fire, it's going to look like, oh, this is the club for me. And if you hand it to me when I, when something was not going right, then, you know, that, that's, it, that puts us in that situation. So to me, the, the best way, which isn't really feasible is hitting a lot of shots over multiple days. Got it. All right. Let's, let's ask those last two questions, Rufus, uh, specifically, and then let's get Let's get Lou out of here. Okay. So some players are like Brooks Kepka, for example, really excel in majors and, yeah. and others tend to struggle. And, but uh, I'm thinking more about the guys that really excel. Um, and, and we can see that I can quantify that there is persistent value to that, but why that that's kind of the question I've always been trying to ask. And how can I predict that? Like, is it a product of different skills being rewarded on more difficult courses or is it like mental strength? And if you think about someone like Kepka and contrast him to, to Tyrrell Hatton when something goes wrong, um, I think there are some big differences <laughs> on the mental side. Or is it yeah. something else entirely? Yeah, uh, Hatton's an interesting character. Um, that's a that's a great question. I think if you can answer that one, um, that's uh, you'd be the first one to I think uh, to be able to answer that. Um, I think the mental game at that level. 
plays a huge role. Um, and recently, who was it? Was it Padraig? Somebody was talking to Padraig about the mental game and the skill game. Did you see that video? And Padraig's answer, did you see that one? Uh, no, I did not. Uh, Rufus is on mute Ruf again. Yeah, Rufus <laughs> is, is gone is gone dark again. Um, and so somebody asked him uh, kind of the same question. And Padraig said, you know, the mental game, um, the way Padraig said was, you could be the best, you could have the best mental game in the world. And if you show up and you play against me, you stand no chance. Our skill level uh, are so far apart that I could have my worst mental day ever and you're never going to beat me. But at the PGA Tour level, that mental game plays a huge role. So your physical skills are extremely important, but once you all have relatively similar physical skills, the mental game starts to change things. And this has been kind of a, a, a deep dive that I've done is there's, a, they've learned a lot about neuroscience. There's been a couple of um, neuroscientists that I've had some conversations with, um, including Dr. Raymond Pryor, who works with a number of players. He just had a book that he released not too long ago. That's awesome. And it's, it's really beyond the typical sports psychology. And it's, it's really evaluating you know, how the brain effectively performs and what things are impacting your performance from a neurological perspective. It's fascinating stuff. The, the follow-up to that and, and similar to that is like the concept of clutch play. Like, do you, is that something you believe in and how much are we reading in a small sample sizes there? And is there something that can be learned sort of both on the professional and amateur level? Yeah, this is one that I, I've looked at, and, and you're right, the you know, small samples are, are challenging. Um, but I looked at it from, and I don't know if Rufus has, has ever done this, but I took the shot link data and I calculated what the leaderboard looked like at every minute throughout the course of the day. I mean, have you ever done that, Rufus? I haven't. That seems like a lot okay. of work. Um, it wasn't too bad. So I calculated the leaderboard at every minute throughout the course of the day. And then with all the timestamps, I'm able to see exactly what the leaderboard looked like at 8.43 p.m. when you teed off on the third hole. And I could see where you were in relation to the lead at that particular minute. So at the hole level, at the shot level, I can see how you perform in relation to where you were um, on the leaderboard. And it's pretty interesting to see. Well, so, go ahead. What about the guys that don't look at the leaderboard? Yeah, that's a that's a great point because some guys don't look at the leaderboard. Um, I think some most do, but some don't. They have no idea what's going on, and and that might be more true on Sundays than than other days. I'd be curious for the ones that don't look if they're still looking, you know, on Saturdays when they're you know kind of in the hunt. One of the last groups. Um, do they look on Thursdays and Fridays? I, I don't know the answer to that, but those are all fair points. I, I think some players are, are, have better mental games. And, and I think those players, especially when you, when you read the neuroscience behind kind of what they learned, um, uh, Dr. Pryor's book is fantastic for that. And, and the last 40 pages are all, you know, academic references of, of studies on this topic. I think there are players that are better at that. That's a skill. And that skill would enable them to uh, be better in clutch situations. Um, but then there's also, there's a lot of luck involved. Um, and winning 
is very challenging and you could go out and play phenomenal golf and somebody you could go out and set the course record and somebody could go out and and set the course record too and be one shot better and you didn't do anything wrong and they just played really well you know there's not a lot of opportunity in golf to play defense if that makes sense bowl of the barbasol last week I missed the first part of that the last hole of the barbasol last week did you happen to watch uh, no i didn't see that, that. I did not see that. Vincent Norman had hit every fairway all day and I think every green. Yeah. And he made, he actually had, he got lucky to bogey the final hole. He had, he, all he had to do was part oh, in it. And then did he pull hook it in the water? Is that on the approach shot? Is that what he did? No, no. He, he no. pull hooked it into a really slopey lie above oh. the bunker on the left. And so he punched it. He stayed in the rough on the left, still with the bad lie ended up missing the green. He almost was in the water and then he chipped up seven feet past and had to make a seven footer for, for a uh, bogey, which did a full 360 degrees. Um, but, but he was a guy who was cruising all day. I feel like there's this, there, there, there's a mindset shift in a way, right? Like he came from behind. He was, I think nine under or something like that. Then he gets to the last hole. He's playing defense. He's got the lead. Like how many, like he was quote clutch before that all day in a way. He was playing, he was at the top of the leaderboard or around the top of the leaderboard. Then you have that one hole where, you know, maybe it was just like, I mean, you saw his swing was a bad swing. He, his arms kind of took over early. He was, there's water all the way down the right side. He really didn't want to miss right. But, but, and then on the, in the playoff hole, he ended up winning with the par despite, um, who was he against? Nathan Kimsey, I think. I think Kimsey's made his best effort to, to choke. I mean, both guys basically were choking, but the notion here is like, how many times do you see Vincent Norman play a hole where he has to, where he just needs to make a par to win a tournament, right? Like, yeah, you don't see it very often, but you know, that's very likely what's going on. There is mental game, you know? Right. I mean, yeah. So the neuroscience side of that, what, what, you know, from what I've learned again, I'm not a neuroscientist, but from what I've learned and why what I understand when you get, scared, anxious, nervous, afraid, whatever you want to say, whatever you want to, however you want to quantify that, whatever word you use, your brain wave frequencies go up. And when your brain wave frequencies go up, it causes three things. Um, that information, your ability to hit a golf shot exists exclusively within your brain. There's no such thing as, as muscle memory. The muscles don't store or retain any information. And so that set of instructions needs to get delivered and oversimplifying, there might be a bit of information that goes to your left wrist um, and it's traveling around along those neural pathways. And those neural pathways are like roads. And when you get high frequency, those roads get jammed up with traffic. There's it's a, it's 9 AM rush hour. And that bit that needs to go to your left wrist to tell it to be in one degree of flexion, it runs into a traffic jam in your left elbow and it doesn't get there in time. It gets there late. And instead of being one degree of flexion, it's one degree of extension because it got there a little bit late. And that one degree of flexion versus extension changes the club face significantly. The ball goes in a very different place. The other thing that it does is it you lose your ability to hold the target, which is really important. In golf, we're typically typically not looking at the target when we play. And so when you look down, you have to be able to maintain in your brain where that target was. And when you get high frequency, what can happen is your brain can shift 
where that target is. So when you see some of these funny swings, when somebody hits a big block or a big pull in a pressure situation, their brain could have shifted the target and their body is just simply reacting, trying to hit the ball um, to that location. The last thing it does when you get high frequency is your ability to feel force is different. So you guys probably don't get nervous anymore, but I'm sure both of you have spoken in front of very large crowds. People tend to get nervous in those situations or being on TV or whatever the case may be. Some people will tell you that like my arms feel heavy, my hands feel heavy. That's your ability to feel force correctly getting impacted. And when you get nervous, that happens. And so if you've ever you know, had a perfect number for a wedge shot, for example, and you hit it, and as soon as you hit it, there's no wind, it's flat golf course, you're thinking go in the hole, um, and it just felt perfect, everything's perfect about it, and it falls out of the air 20 yards short, or it flies 20 yards long, and you're like, what the heck just happened, I don't understand that, and your ability to feel force could have been compromised, and so that typical stock swing could have been four miles per hour faster or slower than what's typical, but it felt typical to you. Um, so all of those things play a role. And when your brainwave frequencies go up, like it could have gone up for him, like that bad oh. swing that you said he made probably isn't a swing. It was probably a combination oh, yeah. of all these factors. And and what was interesting was watching him after that, like after the bad swing, he just, it looked like he was a completely different player. He was going really fast. He was, there was no rhythm and it was kind of like a study and okay, this is what you shouldn't do when under pressure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mental he's still huge. He lucked into the win though. So <laughs> there you go. All right, Lou, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fascinating is where can people find your work? Uh, you can go to loustagnergolf.com. I put out a weekly newsletter um, and find me on Twitter at Lou Stagner. And then also co-host Hack It Out Golf podcast with uh, YouTube golf coach sensation, Mark Crossfield and PGA Tour player, Greg Chalmers. Still out there right. for another year, Rufus. And then he's an old guy. He's on the champions next year. Thanks for joining yeah. us. Yeah. I love Greg Chalmers. Great putter. Yeah. One of the best ever. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Sam Han, rapping rockers, Jeff Ma, Rufus Peabody, crunching all the numbers, Massey Peabody rankings, we're looking for the edge, analytically driven, crunching all the numbers.